When I was in high school, I think I scared myself for about a month the first time I watched The Silence of the Lambs. And if you know the movie, you probably know why I got freaked out as a teenager, or even today. Maybe it's just Anthony Hopkins is a genius at playing a psychotic bad guy. But I bring this around, I promise, because it's the first time I ever learned the phrase quid pro quo. Something for something, I believe it literally translates as. Or in more uh, urban speak parlance, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, um, help, you know, helping people out who have helped you out. And it's a tense collection of scenes throughout the movie to see who's going to quit to get the most pro quo out of their, the other person, if that's the right way to work the Latin. Well, I'll check with Andrew after, after church. But we often consider relationships the same way. As I had said earlier on in the service, you give, uh, give me something and I'll give you something back, or vice versa. And since Christian, Christianity speaks of a relationship with God, one of the things that makes us unique as a faith system, it's only a short jump to think that we can transpose that idea of relationships onto what a relationship with God looks like through Jesus Christ. God does something for us, and then we do something in return. Or, if you take the flip of that, and it gets, so it's getting really dangerous, we do something for God, and then God does something for us in return. Not the way it works. But in this last covenant of our study, we've been looking over the covenants God has been making with his people throughout, uh, throughout the Old Testament. We get to the one where that idea of quid pro quo seems like it would sort of be the, the order of the day. We call this the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinai Covenant, or if you want to be a little less formal, um, the Ten Commandments bit. Maybe that's less formal, maybe it's more formal, I'm not sure, but... As I said earlier, the declaration lasts like 15 chapters. We're not going to try and process all of that in one shot. Today, we're going to look at the start of the conversation between God and Moses as this is starting to be formalized in what we call the Ten Commandments. Or, we'll use it kind of interchangeably, the Ten Commandments or the Law. So, this is going to come out of Exodus 19, verses 1 through 9. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness at Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders and of the people, and set before them all the, Lord, all the words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses returned, or reported these words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and so trust you ever after. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I know this leads, as I've said, to what we know as the Ten Commandments, the law. And it can kind of stir polarizing ideas amongst people. They sort of fall in a different camp of how we as Christians in the 21st century associate or deal with the law. You have some, maybe one camp, where the law is all. And everything is about the law and obedience and behavior and, and holiness. And they have the, the ordinances down to a T. You might consider these the, the lawyer types, but uh, they're more often, they get that gut punch, if you will, of being the legalist, the legalist types. The types that are just all about having everything in order and eyes Eyes dotted at a perfect distance and T's crossed at a perfect uh, perpendicular, uh, you know, pulling out their protractors and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, some people just get that crazy about certain things. Maybe you have known people who have, have fallen into that camp. Maybe you even have some experience at it yourself. Speaking of polarizing, there's the flip camp of those who are like, you know what, the law is old, it's outdated. It's from before Jesus. So obedience has nothing to do with life, so long as we love Jesus. Again, the other polar opposite. Now, there may be a place where these camps kind of capture a lot of people. Maybe there's a place in between that others fall. But it forces us to ask an honest question. Wherever, whatever, however we may think of the law or obedience or um, behavior and stuff like that, if we get right down to it, why should I obey in the first place? And if God is going to, who is incredibly efficient with words, is going to spend 15 chapters talking about a law, why? Why should I obey? If heaven comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, why follow the rules? What's the, the point of it? Or how does that phrase go? Why buy the cow if I can get the milk for free? But it begs another honest question. And sometimes I've heard wise people say that um, maturity comes not from always having the right answers. But sometimes just from knowing how to ask better questions. Maybe that would be a whole other series later on. But maybe a better question than, if heaven comes through Jesus, why should I follow the rules? What if we asked, what if Christianity were about more than just heaven versus hell? Where would that take this conversation? So for a bit, let's cover what the law is not. Okay? 
Because we can look at the law and, and God says, if, um, if you obey my ordinances, uh, where am I? If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession out of all the peoples. You shall be a priestly nation, a holy nation. These are the words I want you to speak to the king, to the Israelites. But what the law is not, and sometimes we just have to say this, it's not given to attain salvation. It's not given to attain heaven, or if we do this, then God will love us, or God will consider us worthy, or God will admire us, or God will um, let us into his inner circle or include us. Even in the Old Testament, before we even get to Jesus and how Jesus plays into, into the story of God's relationship with his people. Again, here the order of operations that God puts out in Exodus 19. Three, uh, two verses, I think. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. I'm going to go back one verse to verse 4 to really capture this. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagle's wings. How I brought you to myself. Grammatically speaking, oh, shoot, Sarah's not here. All past tense. Already done. Before God even enters into this conversation, he has pulled them out of Egypt miraculously. Bore them on eagle's wings, brought them to himself. Now, therefore, since all this is done, now, therefore, out of response to this, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the people. Therefore, Every time we see, therefore, and it comes up a bunch across Scripture, if we see, therefore, it's always good to know what it's there for. Usually points back to what just got said. little Bible study tip for you. Therefore, if you obey, you will get to fully experience being my treasured possession, God says. Just as one benefit. Here's an example. Think of someone special. Again, we're going we're to think about the idea of relationship here. So I'm going to go with like on the level of spouse, husband, wife. It's usually a good idea if you want that image of, hey, marriage is going to be blissful for 24-7, 365, 100, to find out what delights the other person, your husband, your wife. What makes them happy? What makes them feel love in a, in, a, in a special, unique way? Do your homework. Research them, maybe even. Uh, kind of a, a CIA way of thinking about it. And, you know, we don't probably use that idea, but we pay attention. Because it does no, no good... Unfortunately, I don't think I know this from experience, so I'm, I'm speaking on a bit of theory here, but I'm going to trust this is no good that when your loved one asks, do you love me? 
you don't want to answer, well, I married you, didn't I? Because I don't think there is a doghouse comfortable enough, guys. No go there. But see how God opens up the commandments, the law. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But we consider the first commandment. He reminds Israel of the history before he even gets to the rules. It's like, why obey? Why be a part of this covenant? It's like, I've done my part. I make sure I get the words entirely right. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who freed you from slavery. Now, please, I'm asking you to reciprocate. Here, Israel, is what delights me. I delight in honesty. I delight in love. I delight in integrity. I mean, you don't, you don't tell your spouse, well, I got you the ring. Now, the delighting, the being happy, the, the you know, making yourself feel loved, that's all on you now. Again, no go there. There's nothing good that comes out of that kind of attitude. But there's this mutual delighting. God delighting in his people, freeing them from slavery. Something that certainly demonstrates love. Because I'm certainly guessing slavery was not a good situation for them. And Israel, hopefully... Delighting the Lord by, you know, honesty, integrity, um, love, the things that kind of get the characteristics that come out of the Ten Commandments. It leads to the next effect that comes from obeying this law. That they get to be, Israel gets to be a priestly nation. As Moses says in, in 19.6, But you shall be for me a priestly nation, a priestly kingdom, and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the Israelites. Now, I know that even as Christians, that may be like a priestly nation. Yay, what a benefit. What's so special about that? Okay. Think about what was unique about the priests. They had intimate access to God on behalf of the people. Before the Easter story happens, and the priests were kind of the, the intermediaries between the people and God. They were the ones who went into the temple, who offered the sacrifices, who went behind the curtain, that, uh, the veil that separated God from people. They had access. And God says, if you're a part of this covenant, you have access to me. You ultimately, you know, we have access by a different means, not through a priest or through even being priests, but through one mediator, Jesus Christ. But John Piper says, they inherited so much more than land. They inherited not just the land, but the Lord. That closeness, that intimacy, that relationship. And they were not just a nation, though they were that, but they were a holy nation. Set apart, unique, 
It's not holy as in we do more good than bad. That's taking the wrong aspect of the law. And while we try, I'm going to step out of Old Testament here for a second. While we try as a church at large to remain relevant to the world that we speak into, we serve best as being an alternative to the culture. You've heard me use that phrase before, that we, be, that we live as an alternative to the culture rather than a copy of it. So that people who are sick and tired of everything requiring a nuclear response and, and total polarization over what your favorite dessert or coffee mix is, or, you know, it's amazing what people can get all worked up over. And to come into a place, imagine this, to come into a place where while everything out there seems like it is polarizing and is at an 11 and requires a nuclear response, and you've got to blow up about everything because that's just the way the world works. Imagine being in a place, in a community where people love each other, even when they disagree. When they respect each other, even if they look different from each other. Imagine a community that helped each other even when the other person couldn't help back. I mean, mind-blowing. Talk about unique. Talk about set apart. Talk about what Paul, or what Moses calls a holy nation. That might be the kind of community people actually want to be a part of. And it helps us to live into the calling that eventually Jesus is going to pray to the Father in John 17. And it says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. They, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That when they say, see that the church community, this holy nation, is one, that there's something unique about that community. That they might believe that you have sent me. That there becomes a connection. It's amazing how obey my voice and keep my covenant moves the needle forward on our mission to bring the presence of Jesus Christ into this community. Now, as earnest as they are, we had fun with this when I went over this one in consistory. Israel gets a little bit ahead of themselves hearing this story. And Moses came and he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people all answered as one, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. I'm guessing Moses didn't catch the, or relay the, everything the Lord has commanded, we will do, as they keep their fingers crossed behind their back and their toes crossed in their sandals. And Sure, Israel, good luck with that. And a bit later in this story, after um, 
a little bit later on in Exodus 19. My Bible at least has uh, you know Bible headings that have been inserted to kind of break things up, and it, the heading is the people consecrated, which is a nice politically correct way to say that after this declaration, Moses hoses them down with blood. And so, okay, that's certainly a unique set-apart community that's going to do something like that. What in the world? Well, keep in mind that this is not a, a written culture that we're talking about here. This is a, an oral culture, which is to say that when you make a covenant with people today, we often sign a contract, right? Both parties agree to this, put on the John Hancock, and, and that becomes a binding document. Well, this is a culture that doesn't deal in documents. So, their, their equivalent of this is that they sort of melodramatically play out the penalty of if, what's going to happen if we break this covenant. It plays out in a couple different ways that I will not get into because it's more disturbing than Hannibal Lecter and Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs. But it's like saying, if we don't fulfill the, our end of the promise, may our blood be shed. That's sort of where this, is, this unique happening is going. So there's a lot at stake here. It doesn't take Israel long at all for the fingers crossed to come out. When the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron, his brother, and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Glad you hold this guy who led you out through the Red Sea in such high regard. We don't know what happened to him. So Aaron, make us some gods. We'll give you all the earrings and the gold we got. Melt them together into a cow so we can have that lead us. Note, this happens one verse after God gave Moses the tablets. It took a period and a space for, Mo, for the Israelites to go from everything the Lord has said we will do to, hey, Aaron, build us a cow so we can worship that. One verse. Israel should be in such serious trouble. I'd be certainly shaking my head if it took from... Andrew, respect your sister. Okay, Dad. Boom, 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 boom. Be like, oh, you're in serious trouble. Now, for the record, it worked. It, Sarah will do the same thing, and Leah will do the same thing. It's, you know, equal opportunity. We'll obey, Dad. Bang, 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 bang. But God knows. Thanks be to God. God knows. All these covenants he's been making that we've been looking at. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. None of them are going to complete the picture. None of them are fully going to deal with the fact that Israel, even as a holy set-apart people, have this propensity to disobey. And welcome to being human beings on this side of heaven. It's not until the new covenant in Jesus, that the problem finally gets solved. 
that generations later, after all these tries that God made, that He would shed the blood so we could have the blessing. So that as the, the Israelites had said, if we break the promise, may our blood be shed. And Jesus said, okay, I will let my blood be shed on behalf of you. And we'll see how that story starts to unfold as we get into Advent in two weeks. But as I started out, and as I said earlier in, in this service, there are some things just worth repeating because they're just worth repeating. God's part of this deal is written past tense. Already done. The, before, God had done all this stuff for Israel before Israel even had a law to obey or to break. Before it was even spoken out, God had loved Israel and done all these things. And the price for the disobedience was paid. The debt was cleared ultimately in the new covenant. And Jesus accomplished all the obedience necessary so that we could experience the relationship of intimacy. So this week, should disobedience ever happen to be the rule of the day? And it happens. Again, welcome to being human beings on this side of heaven. Recognize in a good way that Jesus paid that price so you could have the relationship with God the Father. And make use of that. It's not that we um, use it as a license to sin, but as a, you know what, God? I, I blew it. Forgive me. And know that if we need to do it a hundred times a day, do it a hundred times a day. Once and for all, on that cross and the empty tomb, that problem got dealt with. And each time, if it's a hundred times a day, if it's ten times a day, if it's a thousand times a day, let your trust in that promise keeper. The one who, who made the promise to forgive and who keeps the promise to forgive. Let that trust be your thank you. Good thing to lead into Thanksgiving in a couple days. Let's pray together. Lord God, we have so much in you to be thankful for. Thank you for being a God who never gave up on us. Who even though you did so much before we even had a law to obey or a, a son in Jesus to worship, you did it all just out of love for us. You demonstrated your love by loving us first. So help us hang on to that. Help us, even in our fallenness, to come to you, to trust you, to trust your promises, and to respond with joy and obedience and love. All this we pray in your name. Amen.